1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be turning in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15 is a, an extended discussion of resurrection. And he speaks very highly, obviously, of the resurrection and the importance of it, both of Christ, but also as it pertains to us, because our resurrection is very much contingent or dependent upon Christ's resurrection. We'll, we'll focus on two verses specifically soon, but I wanted to read uh, an extended passage here from 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's the first uh, 28 verses, if you don't mind. You can follow along here. I don't have it on the screen, so you can follow along in your, in your Bibles or just listen. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1 says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel, which I proclaimed as good news to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still on your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all subjection, all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So much is going on in that, in that passage, but it's celebrating the historical certainty that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. It is interesting how we believe in historical reality, historical truth, things that can be attested, not just as recorded in the book, as if that weren't enough. It is enough. It's written by God. It's revealed through prophets and apostles. We believe it. It is interesting how those three aspects, though, of, of the gospel, as he portrays it here, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, how each of those are so 
publicly certifiable and certified in the Gospels, but in history, such that his death was the most public, publicly evident in the process of his death, but also publicly testified that he did actually die. I think I've mentioned before, there's only one recorded case of a Roman execution that ended in the person, the the uh, crucified person, surviving, being taken down off the cross, living. Now, he lived for a little bit longer. He died eventually of his, of his wounds. And by the way, he had the most expert medical care that anybody could fashion at that time, but he still died as a result of his wounds. To say that somehow Jesus survived not just the crucifixion, but the flogging, the mocking, the scorn, the, the exhaustion, the blood loss, all the things that pertain to his, his sufferings, and to say, oh, he's fine. He, he, he made it. No. You're on the cross. You're going to die. That is the job of the centurion. That's the job of the Roman soldiers to make sure everybody dies on the cross. You don't take down live bodies. So Jesus' death was publicly certifiable. His burial also was multiple witnesses. Joseph, Nicodemus were there. The women were there burying Jesus. Even the, the um, Roman governor, Pilate, was asked, when we have this body, oh, is he already dead? And certify that he's dead? Okay, take it, bury it. So his burial was, was testified by multiple witnesses. His resurrection was testified by multiple witnesses, both those, those Roman guards who ended up telling a false story, according to Matthew 28, or 20, yeah, 28, and yet they were there. They knew the truth. The women who came, they knew the truth. They heard it from the angels. The angels are there presenting. Jesus is risen, just as he said. Jesus had already foretold his death. And tell you what, if Jesus is a liar, then all the things are lies. But he said he was going to be raised up from the dead. He was raised up from the dead. He's a true prophet. We have the apostles bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ. Just as Paul said in this 1 Corinthians 15, we testify. That's one of our main jobs. We testify Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Christ, along with his burial and his death, are so certifiable. No reasonable person of faith or of, of unbelief could deny that Jesus existed that he did die, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So the question is, why? Why all this? Why did he come to die? Why was he buried? Why did he come to not just die for our sins or to die on the cross, but how, why did he, what was his resurrection about? Well, these, this, these verses, as I read in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at verses 21 and 22 specifically. I'd love to look at the rest of this context as well, maybe another time. But we see this truth celebrated here, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21. And he presents this dichotomy. It's repeated two different ways, but you see this distinction. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. The contrast is death and the, the disability of that through this one man, but also a different man, not the, not the same guy, by a man, a different man, also came the resurrection of the dead. You have life, or excuse me, you have death over on this side. You have a resurrection of the dead over on this side. Well, how do you, how, who's in which camp, right? Who's in which side? Which side are we on? Well, he says, this is a reality for since, because this has happened, because we have this, this, uh, reality in our lives. We, we are subject to death. We are subject to decay. We are subject to the, the reasons behind death that we'll get into in just a moment. But in this context of resurrection, we have to say resurrection means that there's a death. You don't resurrect a live person, right? You resurrect something that's dead. Resurrection means coming back to life. Of course, there are other, other aspects of it we'll look at in just a moment also. 
But he says, by a man came death. By a man also came life, resurrection. And so this is a process, a means by which death has been introduced into the world and also resurrection into this world. We see in this context, and we'll get these names. You can read ahead if you haven't already. Verse 22 gives us the names of these individuals. Of course, Adam and Christ are those two. Didn't want a you know, full disclosure there. But Adam is that one who introduced death into our human existence. And if you don't mind, into the whole creation existence. I won't go into the fact of or the, the argument supporting no death at all before Adam's fall. Not just human death, but animal death. Plant death is different. Animal death. Why do we say that? We can talk about that another time. But to say that, that Adam's fall affected everything. Adam and Eve. Of course, Eve ate the fruit too, but Adam disobeyed. She was deceived. Adam disobeyed directly. But his sin affected everything. All of his descendants, but also all of creation. Romans 8, I won't go there because we have so much to do this morning. You, you think, well, you're just getting started. You're only two in two verses. Oh, mercy. All creation has been subjected to futility because of Adam's sin. So this, this is a big thing. By a man came death. By this man, Adam. We read it Friday night in our Good Friday Remembrance. Back in Genesis 2, the command that the Lord gave to Adam, very specific command, do all this good stuff, but hey, there's a tree, special tree, just one tree. All the other trees, they're good for you to eat. Don't take from this tree. Don't, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You will dyingly die. There's a compound. It's the same word repeated. You will, you will die, die, essentially is how it, how it goes there, just affirming the certainty of it. Now, wait a minute. Adam sinned. We don't know how soon after creation he sinned. Next week, two weeks, month, whatever it was. He lived over 900 years. In the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. There's some aspect of death that doesn't pertain to the physical body. Now, I understand there's deterioration and decay and all that, but he lived 900 years. That's pretty pretty impressive. Before the flood. And yet there's an aspect of death that is not just our physical bodies. Death originated with Adam. But you know, sin did not originate with Adam. He didn't make it up. And we could talk about it that Ezekiel 28 and verse 15 says, talks about Lucifer, the anointed cherub, and all the wonderful things that go on with him. And yet, you were perfect until error, deceit, trickery, deception, a wickedness, sin was found in you. And then Lucifer was cast out. And Genesis 3, the serpent came and, and talked with Eve. That serpent is mentioned so many times in Scripture, especially in Re Revelation, where that serpent of old, the devil and Satan, is there deceiving everybody. And that is that one who introduced sin into the world. Death came because of Adam's sin, because Adam disobeyed God's direct command. Now, there are different types of death, as I mentioned. There are different types of death, as we have seen even in that Genesis 2 and 3 passage, that not just, as we would think of it, a, a physical death. There is, first of all, a spiritual death, a spiritual death, which is a separation from God, somewhat uh, at enmity, somehow that, that wonderful uh, familial relationship, because Adam was, after all, the son of God, Somehow that was estranged. Somehow there was a separation introduced because of sin. And we can read it. It's illustrated very carefully in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, how the Lord came down to walk 
in the garden, that garden that he planted, right? God, God is a gardener, and that's a good thing. And he gave the command to Adam to keep that garden. But it says here in verse 8, uh, Then they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid. They hid from God. What are you hiding from God, you think? It didn't work out for Jonah. You think they can do it? <clears throat> it's only two people in the whole whole world, and they think, we're going to go over here. God, you're going to be over there. They tried to hide from God. There was a an estrangement, a separation, a little, little uh, difficulty between them. Sin separates us from God. Spiritual death is what goes on there. You know, the, the first gene genealogy, a list of names of, of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so next began and then all these things and there were there were ages sometimes given and this is in genesis chapter 5 the first genealogy a list of names and all the and you think what's the reason of that one of the reasons is because of that repeat repeated phrase and he died everybody in that list except for one guy died you think oh who's that one guy wasn't Adam or Seth or, or Enosh, it was Enoch, and you can read about that in Genesis 5. But one guy there, and of course one guy elsewhere, Eliyahu, Elijah, did not die. He was taken up uh, directly to God. Enoch and Elijah never died in, the, in a physical sense, but everybody else did. Take their body, you put it in a grave, because the physical death that we have also has a spiritual element, but it has to do with our individual makeup, who we are as humans. Death is a separation of body and soul-spirit. I put that little hyphen or, or da, uh, slash, that's what you call it, between soul-spirit, because we see those terms used somewhat intermittently or interchangeably, I should say, throughout Scripture, that a soul and a spirit refer to the, if you don't mind, the immaterial or non-material aspects of humanity. We are designed by God to be soul-spirit Bodies. We're supposed to be intact. We're supposed to be one person. To have death separate that or introduce a separation between body and soul-spirit, that is foreign to God's intention for us. That is unnatural. He wants us to live as embodied souls. Now, God is a spirit. He doesn't need anything like that. He doesn't need to eat, doesn't need to sleep, all the things that pertain to our physical body. But he said humans are going to be different. They are going to have a soul, spirit, and a body. And when that death happens happens to everybody. Uh, it's that debt that all men must pay kind of thing, except for those two that were accepted. Even Christ died. His soul, spirit, was separated from his body. So this physical aspect is another um, kind of death, a spiritual separation from God, a physical separation of body and soul, which then reminds us of what resurrection is. Personally, it's that rejoining of body and soul, spirit. But there's a third kind of death, and that is eternal death, or as it's referred to multiple times, I think four times in Revelation, the second death, which has to do with casting uh, unbelievers, sinners, un unreconciled sinners into hell, or into the lake of fire and brimstone, into that eternal punishment that God has reserved, originally intended just for the devil and his angels, but because Satan deceived and, and led uh, humanity into sin, well, they're going to participate in that. It was never meant to be the place for humans, and yet they will share in that. You know, by the way, the first people who will be cast into that hasn't happened yet. Nobody's in this, this uh, eternal punishment yet in terms of people, but the first 
two that will be cast there are Antichrist and the false prophet. You think, wow, what kind of honor is that, that they should be cast in before Satan even? Satan during that time, that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that thousand-year millennium, thousand years, it's redundant, but he, uh, Satan is in a, bound in an abyss for that thousand-year period. Meanwhile, Antichrist and false prophet are already not enjoying that eternal punishment, that second death. But that is the destiny for any who are not in Christ. That second death, that lake of fire, uh, Jesus says that the uh, he, Revelation 2 and verse 11, he who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 20, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, that's of the saints. Over these, the second death has no authority. Verse 14 of chapter 20 says, Death and Hades, all the containers, the temporary containers of, of uh, disembodied soul spirits, death and Hades are thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And who, who are those people? Uh, Revelation 21 verse 8 says, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And you think, oh, I'm glad I'm not one of those. You read 1 Corinthians 6 lately. Such were some of you. All the stuff and more that are mentioned here, such were some of you. But if you're in Christ, if you're clinging to him, you've been forgiven. You've been graciously reconciled to God. You don't have to be bound to that thing. You're not subject to that second death, that eternal death that is, is reserved for those who who despise God and trample on the Son of God. We come back to this text. We see again in verse 21, by a man through Adam came death. Well, through Christ came also the resurrection of the dead. Now we have to consider the resurrection in those different aspects of the spiritual aspect, the physical aspect, and even that eternal judgment kind of aspect, such that the resurrection has each of those elements included in it. We see, in fact, we can see four different types because there's a, a preliminary type of resurrection that we see throughout Scripture, throughout uh, even in the Old Testament, but specifically in the time of the Gospels when you have a temporary resurrection. We might refer to it as coming back to life. Lazarus mentioned him, I guess it was last Wednesday night. Lazarus, John chapter 11, he died. Four days later, Jesus came to him, raised him up from the dead. Lazarus come forth. There were other people that, that Jesus had raised from the dead. We can read about Tabitha or Dorcas in, in uh, Acts, that where Peter raised her up from being dead. So, and there are other people as well. Even in the context of Jesus' death, his, his uh, death on the cross, there were souls of saints, souls of people in, in Jerusalem that had been buried, or bodies rather, that they were resurrected temporarily they died again we don't hear reports of people who you know live long on the earth with what's they no we we see a temporary thing lazarus died again you think that's kind of a bummer for him well in god's economy it was accomplishing exactly what jesus wanted in his life and death and new life and then his subsequent death it, it all worked out so types of resurrection. First of all, just a temporary resurrection. He came back to life, or she came back to life. We see Christ's resurrection it's foretold, not just by him, but by Isaiah. He will be numbered uh, with the transgressors, but he will see his offspring. He will see his, Jesus didn't have any offspring. He didn't have any kids. And yet we can be called the sons, or excuse me, the brothers 
of Christ. He is the firstborn among many brothers. And we have that assurance that even though Christ died, his life will be given to him. He foretold it many times throughout Scripture. He warned his disciples, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of wicked sinners, and they will mock him and scorn him and all the nasty things, and then kill him. But three days later, he'll rise again. He mentioned that throughout, beginning in Matthew, Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, but throughout many times. Mark, I think, records maybe the most times where he uh, foretells his death and his resurrection that this will will be accomplished. And of course, it was fulfilled. We read about all the Gospels, as different as some of them are with different accounts that they include or don't include or, or whichever. All four of them almost slow down and pause and get the magnifying glass out and examine each element of Christ's Passion Week uh, with uh, great attention and great detail. And that, of course, is the primary task of the apostles to share the reality, the historical fulfillment of Christ's promise, I will be raised up. And, of course, his resurrection is not a temporary thing. He didn't die again. He's, he's not, uh, he, you know, we, we shouldn't be looking for his burial tomb anywhere. He was ascended. And again, that was another publicly uh, attested event. All the, all the uh, apostles are there. In fact, I think others were there as well, watching as Jesus was taken up into glory. And the angels were there again explaining this. Hey, you don't understand this. Jesus had foretold it already, but uh, I'm going back to the Father and so forth. But the angels interpreted. He's gone, but he's coming back the same way that he left. The primary task of the apostles was to proclaim Jesus died, but he was raised up so many times in Acts, the first preaching, Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon. Peter says in verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. The apostles bore witness to the resurrection of Christ, which is why Paul says, "If, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we're liars. We are bearing false witness about God because we said we are, we are saying that God raised him from the dead. And if he didn't, then we're, we are we're lost. We are you're still in your sins. There's no hope. Uh, those who have died, they're they're perished. Uh, no, but Christ has been raised the first fruits. He is. Well, to say it this way, when Lazarus was raised up, he was resurrected. His soul spirit was brought back to that body that was in the tomb had been in the tomb for four days. Somehow God uh, uh, resurrected, put that body back. So it was functioning again. But Christ's body is different. It is a resurrection body. It is entirely different, which, again, if we had time, just read the rest of Rome, of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 to see, well, how different is that heavenly body? Uh, a, a natural body is what we have now, but this spiritual body, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what kind of body does Jesus have? 1 Corinthians 15 would, would answer that question. So his resurrection is in a different category, and yet it's that kind of resurrection that we look forward to we're still in our fleshly bodies. And for those who have died and their bodies are in the, in the grave or, or decomposed or whatever, God is able to resurrect those bodies, bring them back to life and reunite soul spirit with, with that body. Not just the same body. I mean, that's kind of a bummer to think, I, you know, I get this body back. In, how old am I going to be? 15, 20, 84? How, you know, what age is, is the age going to be? Whatever it is, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be de- delightful because God does right. How old was Jesus? How old was, was, well, that gets into different things. Moses and Elijah, when they came to talk to Jesus, 
they weren't resurrected. It was their spirit, somehow visible, recognizable. How did Peter and James and John recognize Moses and Elijah? I don't know. But they did. Maybe it was told to them who these, who these uh, people were. In any event, the resurrection of Christ is a difference in a different category than what we have. There's another aspect of resurrection. We've looked at it in Colossians 2 and 3 and some other texts related to it, where it is a spiritual resurrection. That is to say, the, the new life that we have in Christ, that we have been raised up with him already raised up with him and seated us. Uh, God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, very similar to what we've read in Colossians 2 and 3. We have been buried with, well, this is Colossians 2, 12. We have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up. You were already past tense, raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Because of Christ's resurrection, we can be raised. Romans 6, 1 through 7. You can read that. I'd love to read it. Because the, the difference that we have now, it's not just something we look forward to, a resurrection in the future. We have been raised. We have been raised to newness of life. We should walk differently now in this world. We're no longer dead in our sins. We are alive in Christ. The implication there we've looked at in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man, since you already have put off the old man with his evil practices and have put on the new man, the new person who is being renewed. How you're renewed, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the renewing of your mind to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal that is so wonderful. Christ is in us. He is transforming us to be more and more like him. So we see these three different types of resurrection, a temporary one where people who had died are now resuscitated. I mean, that's another term. And then they died again. We see the reality that Christ foretold his resurrection. He is raised up. He is the first fruits, the first uh, of that harvest of, of what we look forward to in the future of the uh, restoration of soul and spirit to resurrected bodies, not just our, our natural bodies, but a spiritual heavenly body. And finally, that's what we look forward to, that future resurrection, that eternal state when we are not subject to decay, we're not subject to death, we're not even subject to the, the perils of sin any longer. Again, you could read Romans 7 and realize, why do we still struggle with, with sin? And what, what, what is this battle that goes on so much in our lives? And Paul says it pertains to our flesh. It pertains to this unredeemed aspect of humanity. Our spirit, soul spirit, has been redeemed and restored and resurrected. We are alive together with Christ. But man, we are awaiting that final resurrection. We're awaiting that, that take away, this body of sin. Take it away from me. Who will deliver me from the body of this death, he says at the end of Romans 7. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, O Lord. And so he says, that's where my deliverance is. That's where my hope is. That's where my confidence is. This resurrection idea, this idea of not just a temporary resurrection, not just the Messiah resurrection, not just the spiritual thing, but a physical, eternal, perfect resurrection is something even Abraham looked forward to. It is something that Job looked forward to. He says, uh, um, even though my flesh and, and body decay, yet well, in my flesh I will see God. That was a confidence that he had. And you think, Job, he was like 2000 BC. How does he know all these things? Well, he walked with God. He trusted God, just as Noah trusted God, just as Abraham, who, who looked at his body and said, you're going to raise up a seed, a, a child to me in my old age. He thought that God was able to give life even to his old body. Or when God said in, in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, or whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him there. 
Abraham considered, well, God promised to bless me and all the world through this Isaac. So if I have to kill him, somehow he's got to raise him up. Resuscitation, come back to life. Ideas of resurrection are not a New Testament idea. It's throughout the Old Testament. Of course, I mentioned Isaiah 53. Resurrection is all throughout Scripture. Of course, the resurrection of Christ, people attesting to it uh, in Acts, 1 Corinthians, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any, any of the apostles who do not testify to the fact, the certainty that Christ re was raised from the dead. When he says back here in verse 21 that we have the resurrection of the dead, the dead are those, and that's plural, that's many people, not just one person, not just talking about Jesus. He's the only one who's getting resurrected out of here. No, his resurrection means everybody else who, are, who is in Christ can be resurrected as well. Those whose body and whose, whose body and soul have been separated, both unrighteous and righteous. And we'll see that in just a moment. He presents this contrast in verse 22, carries it forward a little bit farther, and he says, as in Adam all die. So now we have the name. Oh, it's Adam we're talking about. Not that we didn't have an idea. Also in Christ, then. Also in Christ, all will be made alive. Do you realize the so, the vital importance that Adam was not just a figurative uh, example for us. It's not a, a figure of somebody's imagination. Moses isn't just you know, contriving a character to illustrate certain theological truths or whatever. Adam lived. His wife Eve lived. The things spoken about in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and well, let's keep on going to the end of the book. It's all true. It actually happened. Adam and Eve? Oh, that's so old-fashioned. How dare you believe in the, the, I mean, that? That's so scientifically disproven. No. We have good evidence that Adam and Eve existed. And apart from all that evidence, the Bible says they did. And it treats them as historical individuals who really walked on this world, who really lived in this life. Adam was mentioned, of course, by uh, the Lord, saying that in the beginning, God created uh, male and female. And he said, for this reason, the man shall leave his father. And talked about all that marriage ideas. But he's referring to something that really happened. For Paul to say in Adam, in this figurative historical, you know, this, this character in, in literature, we, wait a minute, he's talking about a theological implication. Because of what Adam did, death came into the world. Because of what Adam did, everybody dies. Death came into our existence. We have this reality uh, true about our existence that nobody stays in this world. All will be subject to that decay that, that, that our, our, as uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. We see that reality that, man, what's happening to this body? And yet the promise, the expectation we have is, I don't need this body. God is able to raise up stones to Abraham, you know, rocks. He's able to, to raise up anybody. It's not an issue for him. Uh, which is so surprising. Over you know, 6,000 years of, of human history, of history, we'll just say that way, God is able to raise up bodies that aren't just decomposed. They, they, there's no trace of them anyway. You can't put them back together at any way. God is able to do it. He is able to do it. And he will do it. This gives us a contrast and maybe a little dilemma because it says, in Adam all die. We know that. We recognize that. We, we see it going on in our existence all the time. But what about the second thing? If this is true universally, universally, in Adam all die, is the same thing universally true? In Christ all will be made alive? 
everybody's going to be resurrected all if all means all right if all people born of adam and eve are going to die except those two we always have those exceptions by the way elijah and enoch or enoch and elijah historically chronologically if everybody's going to die does that mean everybody's going to be raised up well yes as a matter of fact it does mean everybody's going to raised up does that mean everybody's going to be raised up in the same way no but in Christ, the resurrection is possible. We can have not just the, the certainty of death, because we're in Adam, but the certainty that we will live. Now, what this is not saying, by the way, is that all people from all times will be saved regardless of their faith in the gospel. It doesn't matter what you believe. God's going to save everybody in the end. Just live how you want to live, and it'll be fine. God is so loving. You know, in fact, there's a book titled Love Wins. It's kind of a universalism, uh, you know, salvation goes to everybody, doesn't really matter. Well, that's false. You know, so many times Jesus says, he makes a distinction of, of the sheep and the goats or the, the wheat and the tares or the, the good soil and the bad soil. Or, you know, we see that and there's a distinction made and there's a different future for both, a different way that he relates to both sets. So we see at least that separation. All will not be saved regardless of their faith. That first preaching is Peter and at Pentecost be saved from this perverse generation. If you don't have to be saved, then why don't you just go out and live? In fact, he says, if there's no resurrection, why don't we just eat and drink? And Because we're going to die anyway. Why don't you just enjoy it? You only live once after all. Another implication of this, which is false, is that all will be saved by faith in the gospel in this life or the next. You'll have a second chance after you die. Those who are in, in, in Hades right now, they can call upon the name of the Lord. They can be saved even after they die. False. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed a man once, and women, boys and girls, to die, and then comes judgment. There's not a, a second chance for some people. That's not how it works. You will not be saved by faith in the gospel in the next life. Now, today is a day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Why waste the time? Why waste another day living outside of Christ? Run to him. Trust in him today. Live for him. A third and final implication of this, which is false, by the way. All will be saved after, you know, a temporary punishment uh, for unbelief. Oh, you know, bad for you. You didn't believe in the gospel and, and you're going to have to bear your sins only temporarily. And then everybody's out. Okay, come on. Uh, the, the timeout is over or the, the uh, detention or the suspension or, you know, come on in, everybody. God is so loving. No, just as uh, God is just, he is perfect in his justice and those who die in their sins well you died in your sins that was your choice you didn't have to christ proclaimed that uh, salvation to you you rejected it you turned away from it you thought ah, who is this god that sounds like pharaoh who's this god that i should serve him no repent and believe in the gospel as in Adam all die, so in Christ all who made alive doesn't mean that everybody's going to heaven when they die. It does mean that everybody is going to be raised up. We talked about those different types of resurrection, but we see a promise. And you have to look at this because maybe you, you won't believe me. But John chapter 5, you should. Well, you should believe what I say from the scripture. John chapter 5, this is Jesus speaking, of course. John 5, beginning at verse 21, talks about these two resurrections or a resurrection, but a different implication of each. Uh, I'm kind of picking it up mid-conversation mid Jesus is having. But he says in uh, John 5 and verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. 
for not even the ju- the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, so that he or so that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, another truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Oh, is Jesus teaching a universal salvation? No, let's keep reading. For just as the Father has life in himself, even as he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There is a resurrection for everybody. Some, as Jesus said here, to life. Some to judgment. There is that second death. There is that eternal uh, death that we can experience that we, we can also avoid by running to Christ, clinging to him. So this truth This statement here in in verse 22 is a true statement. In Christ, all will be made alive. He is the master of life. He is the one, when he calls, nobody is going to refuse him at that day. Come forth. Lazarus, come forth. Did Lazarus have any choice not to? Lazarus was dead. How in the world is he able to? I mean, his ears don't work anymore. He's dead. He's confirmed it. He's been in the grave for four days. But God raised him up. And he's able to raise up any number of people. Remember the, the parable? that Jesus told in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, there is a conscious suffering of unbelievers, those who did, as Jesus said, the bad deeds, the evil deeds here, those who did not have any thought of God, did not live for God, did not trust him, did not walk by faith in God as Abraham did, as Noah did, as other people did, and they refused to submit themselves to God, they will be resurrected, their bodies will be uh, uh, resurrected or, or uh, rematched with their, their soul spirits, but not for life, for judgment. That is something we can avoid. It says, in Adam all die. That's a reality we assert, affirm. In Christ, all will be made alive. And we think, oh, that's going to be happy, not for people who are not in Christ. Those who are in Adam, and you think, uh, you know, the distinction between Adam and, and being in Adam and being in Christ. We are the descendants of Adam, but it's not so much the the, the physical descendant issue because Jesus didn't have any physical descendants, and yet we can be called in Christ. In fact, that's one of the most popular sayings of Paul, to be in Christ or, or in, in, well, in Christ. He just uses so many different times. That is a distinction. It's a different class of people, different group of people. Those who are in Adam is everybody. Those who are in Christ, not everybody. Only those whom the Father has called, only whom the Son has received, that John 10 says, no one will snatch them from my hand or my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, he says. So there's that, that certainty, that reality, that in Christ all will be made alive, not just alive to judgment, but alive to life. I want to finish by giving a quick summary of some different ways in which uh, Adam and Christ are similar and yet different. In fact, I guess most of these are differences where, because he presents this implication in verse 21 and 22 of the the differences that that Adam brings to our life, but also what Christ does. And I'll just summarize these. If you want these listed, I have, I don't know, a lot more than I'd put on the screen here. But Adam brought death, but Christ brings resurrection. Wonderful distinction. Adam was the first man. Christ is the last Adam. 
Adam became a living soul, but Christ became a life-giving spirit. Adam lived for himself. Christ is able to live and, and share that life with others. Adam disobeyed God. Just once, initially recorded. We don't have other indications other times when Adam disobeyed God, but I'm sure he did because he was a sinner after his initial disobedience. But Jesus always obeyed God, fully accomplished the Father's will. Adam imputes sin to us. We didn't see this in this context. Paul was more concerned about the results of sin, that is death, because in Romans 5, you can read verses 12 through 21, talk about the sin implication. Death comes, but death uh, because of sin. And yet through Christ, we can be granted righteousness, not by works. As much as Jesus said here, he said, those who committed evil or good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, when that final judgment comes, great white throne judgment, it's based on works, it's based on deeds. But those whose names are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, it's a different classification. It's not based on our work. It's based on Christ's work. We're saying, I've got nothing. I'm worthy of your judgment, God. I am worthy of your holy and righteous sentence and condemnation and separation from you for eternity. But you said whoever calls upon you, calls upon your name, will be saved. I'm calling on you. Save me. Deliver me from that wrath that is to come. And we can be transferred from that condemnation to now being justified. In fact, that's what this goes on. He says, Adam brings judgment, but Jesus brings grace. Adam brings condemnation, but Christ brings a justification of being declared righteous, legally uh, forgiven, canceled. Our debt has been canceled through Christ. Adam died for his own sin. Genesis 5 says, Adam begot so and so and so and so. And then he died. And Seth died and Enosh died and all these other people, they died for their own sin. Christ died, not for his own sin. He wasn't guilty of death by God, the Father's attestation, but also through Pilate. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. What are you, what are you doing? With I, I know it's because of jealousy, you guys, you Sanhedrin are handing it. He's innocent. I wash my hands of this matter. We're done. You do with him what you will. Christ, though, he died not for his own sin, for the sins of others. When you die for the sins of others, that means that they're sinful people. And I'm looking at y'all, and you're looking at me, and we say, you know, we're all sinners, we're kind of in the same camp. But are we in Christ's camp? Are we in Christ? Are we clinging to him for our life, for our hope, for our, our deliverance from sin? Adam ate from a tree. Christ hanged on a tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Adam said, you'll be cursed. Or God said to Adam, you'll be cursed which you eat of the tree. Adam did a selfish act. You remember those promises? And you, you think, I don't know, reading into it in Genesis 3, serpent's talking to Eve. Where's Adam? On the other side of the tree, somewhere nearby, because when Eve handed the, the fruit to eat to her husband, he ate. What was he after? What were those promises that, that Satan was tempting with? Oh, you'll be like God, knowing good from knowing good and evil. And God is a liar, and you, you, you don't want to follow a liar, do you? And all these things. And, and then the, the summary statement is, well, Eve saw that the fruit was good for herself and, and, and beautiful to the eyes. And oh, a promise is such good things. I'm going to eat. Yum. And here, Adam, have some. He was acting selfishly. He was believing the lie of Satan that I will be like God. I will lift myself. I'm going to displace God. He does. God's got nothing on me. I'm so wonderful. I'm so perfect in myself, which is a lie. I mean, we know ourselves. Adam acted selfishly for his own self-interest. Christ laid down his life multiple times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but your will be done. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give a life, his life a ransom for many.
Adam blamed his bride. Did you get that? It's the woman you gave me. She gave to me and I ate. It's her fault, which by implication is, it's your fault, God, because it's the one you gave me. <gasps> That's not good. But Jesus removes blame. Ephesians 5. He removes blame from his bride. He washes her with the, with the washing of the word and it makes her beautiful. A final one. Adam brought a curse. Oh, when God curses, he curses. I mean, he knows how to do it. But when God blesses, he knows how to bless because Jesus became a curse. It's not enough. God, God in his justice, God in his holiness cannot just say, oh, you're forgiven without a death, without a blood sacrifice. Truly, you can say that death is the result of sin. Death is the wages of sin. You sinned, the soul that sins shall surely die. That curse that comes on us because of that sin, Jesus took. He paid the penalty, and his resurrection proves that, Christ, that God the Father accepted that payment, not for himself, because Jesus was innocent, but he died in the place of lost and ruined sinners. He became a curse for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That is our joy. Now, it's only for those who are in Christ. You, each one here, will be resurrected. Some to life, some to judgment. What's the difference? Christ, Christ, Christ. Run to him. Look to him. Call upon his name. Don't wait. Why wait? Why wait until I'll do it later? Run to Christ right now. Do you have a guarantee that you're going to even make it home today? They're going to take your next breath? <gasps> okay, you took your next breath. You can take your next one. I mean, if we can go on like this. Christ is at hand, ready to save, ready to deliver, ready to be your friend, your savior, your sufficiency, your comforter, your refuge, your rock, your redeemer, your anchor in a time of trouble, your confidence, your all the other things that we could talk about from Scripture that Jesus is. Look to him. You don't need to bear your own sins. Jesus bore them for you. You can't bear your own sins. You're going to die in your sins, and that's it. Then comes judgment. Christ became a curse for us so that we can be forgiven. Praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your salvation. It was never our idea that you would save sinners, and yet you and your love and your grace and the love that you had for, the, for your Son wanted to present a redeemed humanity as a love gift to your son. This, this great triune uh, love and, and affection is just so profound. And we can be benef beneficiaries of it, recipients of your grace. I pray that each soul here would be trusting you wholly, finding their clothing not in their own righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. All our righteousness is filthy, rotten garments. And yet in Christ we have a perfect holiness, a perfection that we could never attain on ourselves. Please save, please sanctify us, please help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's you who both wills and works in us for your good pleasure. Please help us to walk in newness of life. Please help us to walk differently in this world, circumspectly, redeeming the time. Please help us to live for your honor and glory. Please help us to continue where the apostles left off, preaching the resurrection, sharing the good news of Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day, bearing our sins, bearing our justification, accomplishing it, and he promised that he will come again and that where he is, we will be with him. We thank you for your faithfulness to your own promises. Help us to trust them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.